0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tech Spansive. I'm Sean Dubravac at Avrio Institute.
1: And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical
0: Research. Uh, this week in uh, tech news, Sony has announced a next-gen VR controller for their uh, PS5. They announced it through a, uh, a blog post on their uh, PlayStation blog. Uh, and it allows for a much more immersive experience. Provides haptic feedback. Pr- uses what they call adaptive triggers and finger touch detection. Uh, as all good game consoles do, it it uses a bunch of buzzwords that don't really tell you exactly uh, what it what it does. <laughs> It'll be uh, cool. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and I see this, you know. <sighs> We, Ross, we've talked about it on the podcast before. Televisions are getting connected. Game consoles are becoming uh, essentially cloud-based virtual consoles. They're going to show up natively in televisions. Uh, we've seen that LG has already been do- doing that with uh, Google Stadia and uh, with um, GeForce Now. and um, And so you have to wonder what the role is for game consoles when we do eventually move game platforms to to virtual uh, and the the controller arguably can differentiate some of these services when you have a, a controller that provides some real value so maybe Sony's trying to to um, focus more on controllers than than the game console which has really been where they've focused over the last thirty years uh, arguably and now they're focusing on you know some of the accessories. Nintendo really I would say was quite successful in 07 06 and 07 when they did this with the Wii mode of course and, and changed the way we thought about game consoles and game controllers uh, and and Sony is doing that as well.
1: Yeah, the Wii controller was uh, certainly a a key part of the value and appeal uh, of that uh, of that console it was a real differentiator. Uh, and one that was successful in promoting the the console and driving sales of the console, as opposed to, say, Microsoft's Kinect, uh, which never really caught on with gamers, just didn't provide as satisfying a gaming experience and ultimately was dropped from the platform. Although the core technology has uh, gone on uh, in, into PCs and phones and, and other, other devices, uh, uh, for a far broader uh, application range. But, um, but this really represents a commitment to VR that a lot of people weren't sure that Sony was going to make. They were very late in announcing, at the time that they announced the PS5, uh, they hadn't committed publicly as to whether they were going to bring forward the uh, virtual reality uh, headset, uh, or a new generation of that, they did commit to backward compatibility. Uh, but the old headset, you used kind of a generic motion controller, uh, speaking of the Wii, uh, that was called the uh, the Stony Move, and, and they adapted it, uh, and was kind of, you know, light detection based. Uh, this uh, this looks like a, a big jump forward, and uh, as with other elements of the PS5, uh, we don't know you know how much it's going to cost yet, but it will likely be uh, on the uh, on the higher end of the market. Uh, and we also don't know the pricing of what their new uh, PlayStation VR headset will look like. Um, you know, the the first generation was relatively affordable compared to what was out there. Now, of course, you have competition from the Oculus Quest and limitations. Um, uh, in terms of uh, you know the the range of of games that it's uh, compatible with, but the bigger issue right now, Sean, to your point about these consoles uh, going virtual is that for now, uh, for most intents and purposes, they are virtual because you can't buy them uh, because of the chip shortage uh, and uh, a number of other factors that um, I, I've seen detailed lately such as scalpers. It uh, looks like the situation isn't going to be improving for a couple of months. So, you know, this idea of building up a platform within a platform on VR is essentially moot uh, until you can get some some volume uh, out there in terms of the, the base PS5 platform.
0: Yeah, and it feels like we just don't yet have a true, you know, The killer app, if you will, for for virtual games. Yet we don't have the Call of Duty or the Fortnite where kids and and other gamers are clamoring to play it in virtual Mm. reality and really driving uptake of of the hardware. Uh, Like you know, Fortnite was for a time there the a major motivator to getting into games and getting on games because everybody in that cohort was talking about it was was doing it we even saw uh, artists and musicians use it to launch uh, you know to launch their music they were doing virtual concerts in in fortnite and other things over the last year uh so i i think you know we're not quite there yet and like you said that the price points are uh are relatively high i think for some um to really make it mainstream that was the beauty of course of the Wiimote was the price point was quite a Attractive, and so people were willing to experiment with it at at what was a relatively low price compared to other uh, game consoles in, in other related news, we saw that Facebook is announcing a wearable wrist device it's currently in the research stage, but it would pair with AR glasses and uh, allow uh, users to then interact with um, with objects using the the uh, you know, sensing what their hands were were doing. So, uh, unlike the virtual reality um, remote controls that uh, that PlayStation Five is talking about, that Sony's talking about, these would allow you to use your hands without actually having to touch anything, without actually having to hold controllers. So your hands would still be free, and, and that is, I think, what we've seen in early pilots for. For augmented reality a key feature you imagine a worker in a warehouse being able to scan packages or do other things like that you want both of their hands free both for productivity so that they can get more done but also for safety if they're moving around you don't want them to have to hold controllers and today for the most part they are holding some device they're holding a scanner they're holding maybe a, a mobile phone maybe a tablet uh, and maybe they're trying to do both. They've got a tablet in one hand and a and a uh, scanner in another hand. So if you can free their hands up, you improve their workflow, but you also improve safety, which is is a key consideration in these environments. And so uh, you know, Facebook is uh, very dedicated to the AR VR space, and here they are expanding their hardware universe on other devices that will work in tandem with some of the platforms they're trying to build out.
1: Yeah, this was really introduced as uh, a look inside their lab. And it's important to note that this wristband cuff kind of device is uh, still a few years out, most likely. Uh, it really relies on advanced haptics, far more sophisticated and nuanced than you know the simple buzzing that you get when you touch your smartphone screen uh, today or the keyboard and get a little bit of feedback. Uh, The idea is that you want that physical feedback when you touch uh, a button, say in augmented reality. So it's really a key part of the interface. And uh, with the example you give, Sean, it's very much in touch with where that market is today in terms of a lot of industrial usage and commercial usage Uh, But of course, Facebook is interested in in this becoming a very mass market phenomenon. Um, I think one of the more interesting aspects of this uh, this device or future device uh, is this idea that even though I might press something with my fingertip, I would get the tactile feedback in my wrist uh, because that's where I'm wearing the device and Uh, That may seem a little strange uh, and unnatural, uh, but, you know, Facebook uh, researchers say that there is a large body of evidence uh, to support that uh, even though you're not feeling the sensation at the point of interaction, it still feels very natural, um, you know, because of various psychological principles. And, you know, it's certainly easy to believe that it's... um, uh, it's, it's, it's feels more natural than getting no feedback at all. So, uh, so again, this, this is a few years out. Uh, I, I think it's just, um, uh, uh a, a tactic by Facebook to show that, you know, they continue to, uh, pr- pursue much more mainstream applications of augmented reality, even though they don't really have a smart glasses or, HoloLens, Visor-type uh, product out there, um, but, uh, but you know, to the extent that uh, VR even has, uh, as, you know, as we were just talking about with Sony, uh, to, to the extent that you know, there has been a leader in consumer VR, uh, it's been Facebook, particularly at this time where Sony is kind of between releases. And again, even in a best case scenario, as i mentioned before the next uh, playstation headset is going to work only with the playstation whereas the uh oculus quest to is a standalone device uh and um you know is is, is attracting uh, a, a lot of different apps to to the platform you know none of them may be these uh breakthrough apps uh that that you know, you refer to Sean accurately. Uh, but for example, I, I was able to use the Oculus Quest 2 to log into a Microsoft presentation <clears throat> in virtual reality. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, it's a device that's about half the price of uh, most other options for, for connecting to that kind of environment. Uh, and it worked, uh, it worked quite well.
0: Well, and we know that Facebook is definitely working on smart glasses. They will have mm-hmm. some connected glasses presumably sometime later this year, and then full fledged AR glasses in years ahead so uh, i wouldn 't be surprised at all if by say two thousand and twenty three we see a hollow lens like uh, you know glasses from from facebook uh, and i think it 's also interesting that if you think about the roots of facebook it was all about consumer to consumer interactions and ar is is quite far field from that i see ar primarily showing up on the enterprise side and so uh you, you know you are going to see facebook serving a much broader market and obviously there is a b2b you know model for Facebook when it comes to advertising when it comes to reaching your customers but it it's roots its legacy is definitely in the consumer space and yet uh, ar is to me at least early on will be heavily on the the enterprise side and uh, and you see facebook building out you know building out the hardware to support that and and kind of building out the infrastructure Um, And it's, you know, it's interesting to me, and we've talked about this in past podcasts, how all of these large tech companies, as they grow big, need to move into different verticals. And Facebook hasn't historically been a large hardware vendor, but you continue to see them play in that space. They're doing a lot of testing, a lot of exploration and experimentation. They've come out with devices that, uh, you know, have... Received varying degrees of support. You can think of portal or you know other devices, but um, here here's another example of a device that might hit the uh, the enterprise market. And we'll see what the uptake looks like.
1: And and particularly relevant, given as we've discussed in the past few weeks, the escalating tensions with Apple, uh, feeling stymied on the iPhone platform, and making a long bet that they can control a an important post smartphone platform uh, where they they won't be subject to a lot of the regulations that uh, apple uh, apple enforces on the app store
0: yeah and and even if you think of antitrust i you know this helps them move away from some of the antitrust concerns or or maybe it exacerbates it i don't know but (laughs) it's a it's a very different marketplace for them so it isn't about creating a channel for consumers it, it you know it's a very different market it presumably can be monetized in a very different way yep. and so it moves away from some of those traditional metrics that uh, you know that has garnered a lot of antitrust scrutiny in, in the last year uh, in, in other related Facebook news and just broadly what's happening with some of the social networks we saw that Facebook has announced that they are going to crack down on uh, misinformation in the groups and and just abuse of their um, of their standards and their requirements uh which could ultimately lead to being banned from uh, from the platforms facebook of course has has continued to make moves away from the main news feed and moving towards groups that 's where they really are um, placing their bets when it comes to communications focusing on much smaller Groups and and uh, much smaller networks, as opposed to you know being connected to everyone and sharing the same amount of information across to all of that those individuals, you are now focused on much more, uh you know much smaller groups. Yeah,
1: the nice thing about groups is that it really has you opt into the type of content you are interested in discussing. So you're not going to be ambushed or subject to uh, a lot of uh, information in your feed by people that you don't want and you know that leads to negative reactions and muting and things that and and rising tensions that uh, Facebook is really trying to address. So um, nonetheless groups can get very large and you can have information spread across groups. So uh, what Facebook is doing is uh, to coin a phrase, building a wall uh, or rather, you know, lots of little walls uh, to, um, you know, to keep these things in their little fiefdoms. Uh, And, um, you know, there's, I I think overall, this is a good move. I I think this is one of the more positive things I've seen Facebook do to try to, you know lower the temperature of of the dialogue on the service and uh, and and slow the spread of uh, of disinformation and and put in some real penalties to to discourage it uh, there is a counter argument that if you start to crack down too much, you start driving a lot of these groups uh, to Alternative or newer social networks, right? You know, we we saw a lot of that discussion with Parler and Gab, and you know, whatever social network the My Pillow guy is is talking about starting, uh, but um, but it's not quite the same, you know. And I I think we've seen that in terms of, for example, since um, uh, Donald Trump was was banned from Twitter, he hasn't really. Uh, embraced any of these smaller social networks like like Parler and Gab. Yeah, you know, there has been a lot of discussion about how he may uh, throw his weight behind um, a, a newer one that has yet to launch. But uh, but at least for now, it's very difficult to get uh, the kind of audience uh, that uh, he he was able to command on uh, on those larger social networks.
0: Uh, in other Facebook news, we also saw them and kind of carrying on this theme. Uh, Axios reported this week that they'll soon begin testing partnerships with small groups of independent writers for their new publishing platform. Uh, there's some talk about potentially having newsletters. Newsletters have been all the rage lately, of course, Substack, uh, you know, has, has seen great success there. But others are, are moving in that, and we've seen a lot of independent writers leave their their papers and um that they were reporting for and start their own newsletter services we've seen it in the tech space but we've also seen it in the the popular press as well so facebook is is uh testing and exploring a publishing platform yet to be named that will integrate with facebook pages and uh and so we see you know facebook exploring Lots of areas. Of course, some of this comes out of the the battle that they had in Australia, I, I think, and looking for new ways of supporting media, but also monetizing media, and not just not just being a conduit, but also being a a financial partner in some ways where both both benefit.
1: Yeah, it's it's a way to gain access to the content without having to negotiate with the brand or the infrastructure. Uh, on top of that content. So, you know, if you attract the top writers who are really driving the engagement uh, from a lot of these publications, uh, then, you know, you can, quote, support journalism uh, without necessarily supporting the institutions of journalism. Uh, And, um, you know, it it also raises questions uh, about when you are facilitating these kinds of newsletters Uh, are you a publisher, are you editorially liable? This has come up a lot with Substack uh, and its pro-offering where as you know, Sean, they are incentivizing uh, journalists, generally full-time staff journalists to leave their publications and uh, and publish a Substack newsletter. And the deal that they offer them is that they will pay eh, essentially the equivalent of a full-time salary uh, on the first year in exchange for 85% of the newspaper revenue. And then the following year, it, it flips. The writer doesn't get a salary, but gets to keep 90% of the newsletter revenue, which is kind of their standard deal anyway. So you're, you're just kind of removing uh, some of the launch risk of, of the first year and giving the writer a little more time to, to build up an audience, uh, because of course, that's the thing that they leave behind when they leave their publication. So uh, as you know, uh, Facebook, I think, has a very strong potential play here uh, in terms of more consumer-focused offerings. Twitter uh, hasn't really revealed a lot more detail since they purchased Review, uh, which is um, R-E-V-U-E, uh, which is a Substack competitor. And I think in terms of B2B, the... Um, you know real a real major player who is yet to announce a move here has been LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn already facilitates newsletters uh you know you can publish a newsletter on on LinkedIn you just can't charge for it um, but of course it wouldn't take much for them to flip that switch uh, and uh, uh, i I think that would that would hold a lot of potential uh, Forbes also announcing that it's um it's launching a paid newsletter offering starting anyway with um with staff writers.
0: Them. yeah and it, it's interesting to me to watch the social networks morph beyond just what they you know were historically destined to do which was create communication platforms and, and a way of you know sharing things and they're they're morphing into transaction-based uh businesses so you saw snap uh acquire uh this week um a company that is focused on helping consumers shop online essentially berlin based fit analytics it helps shoppers find the right size apparel and footwear online and works with about 18,000 retailers so they're uh you know staying true to their roots as a camera company but uh but really also um focusing on something that that has the potential to be heavy transaction based for the consumers and connecting them to, you know, to businesses. I, I actually think using the camera on your phone, to you, you know, to to shop to get the right fit for things, to get the right shoe sizes based upon your your shoes. I think that makes a lot of sense. Nike is is doing that uh, with an app, um, having that AR feature built in, so that you can pick the right sizes. This obviously helps with all of their reverse logistics, so you don't have as many returns, and you can uh, save costs there. Uh, but it's just one more step of these social networks moving beyond just communication platforms to transaction-based platforms. We've seen Instagram make pretty strong moves in this direction as well.
1: I think another interesting angle is you know you had Twitter, which was the text right, the, the short text social network. And then you had Instagram, which was the photo social network. And I guess you could argue that YouTube is kind of the video social network. Uh, YouTube now getting, uh, again, talk about getting back to your roots, is kind of rediscovering short form video uh, with these uh, YouTube shorts designed to take on TikTok. I guess you could say maybe TikTok is the the short form video social network. Um, And of course, uh, Clubhouse, you know, trying to establish itself as the audio social network and in a short time, I mean, these guys don't even have an an Android uh, client yet. Uh, They have attracted a lot of competition, um, some actually pretty good feedback that I've seen on Twitter Spaces, uh, which is essentially Twitter's clone of Clubhouse. And uh, a lot of companies rushing in uh, Fireside and another, Fireside Chat, uh, another uh, another, um, startup in the space. But company is really looking to kind of bridge this gap between this audio chat that clubhouse has and a traditional podcast like you're listening to now where uh it's pre-recorded and and then it's published um a new offering swell is kind of a more traditional facebook-like post model uh so it's asynchronous uh audio recordings probably not again with the formality uh, of a podcast uh, but not as uh, <clears throat> extemporaneous as, as a clubhouse chat uh, either, and you can consume it on your own time, uh, which would seem to be an advantage to me. Uh, however, it, it also makes them, I think, more vulnerable to having their uh, ideas uh, or, or their paradigm uh, usurped by, by Facebook or, or Twitter, um, you know, particularly Facebook, which has had that, that post- metaphor, you know, essentially since, since the beginning. Uh, so, um, you know, the question is, is, is audio going to really have its own champion social network? Um, and, and we'll see, um, but, uh, but it's clearly something as, you know, we're seeing YouTube attack TikTok, uh, as we're seeing Twitter attack Clubhouse, uh, where some of the, and, you know, to the point I made before about some of these niche social networks that, um, you know, some of these uh, uh, outliers are, are flocking to, um, you know, they, these guys have, of course, the advantage of huge uh, established audiences, uh, which helps them both with audio and, of course, with newsletters.
0: And at the same time, it's still very difficult to win these markets. Facebook tried for a very long time to be the social network of video. And you can think back many years ago when they would watch. Or-
1: yeah facebook watch yeah
0: well and and you know think back to the ice, book, ice bucket challenges the, all those mm. videos that were posted during that summer where Facebook was raising videos higher in the algorithm, so part of what drove the popularity of of that uh, of that um, movement was and that you know that fundraising effort was that Facebook was pushing videos higher up in the algorithms and trying to get them to to rise in your uh, your newsfeed, and what I think TikTok discovered was it wasn't that we wanted to you know have those type of videos, but we wanted really short form video, and YouTube really wasn't well positioned to deliver, uh, you know, what I would call like micro servings of of sh- of video, which which TikTok has done. So um, we've yet to see, I think, a really viable competitor to TikTok. But to your point on audio. Uh, very quickly Twitter spaces has moved into that. And I was in the room the other day, somebody was listening to uh, an audio feed and I, you know, I said, is that clubhouse? Or are you listening to, to Twitter spaces? Because when you're just listening to it, you really can't, oh, you can't course. tell. Of course. Uh, and, and since Twitter already has so much of our time and attention, I think it's going to be very easy for them to, to quickly move into that, uh, to that space uh, I'm not convinced that Facebook wants to focus that much on audio. I, I, you know, I think they could move into that arena if they wanted to. I think they still have a, a love for video and want to see people posting more videos and sharing more videos. And I think there's still a desire to to have a, a greater share of the you know the video consumption that takes yeah, place. Yeah. And, okay. and maybe they look at YouTube and see what YouTube has been able to accomplish with video, and they, they want to emulate some of that. You
1: know what else this reminds me of a little bit? Uh, as Twitch rose to prominence, we saw YouTube try to compete with, with YouTube gaming. We saw Microsoft jump in with something called Mixer, uh, a startup that that uh, they, they purchased uh, and wound down, I think, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, just... Um, well, they yeah, hi- t- t- they hired
0: stars to come yep, in exactly and, that's, that's, and be exclusive. That's what I'm to referring me, to exactly. Yeah. And then when and then when they those contracts expired, you saw them quickly jump to YouTube or to uh, right. you know, to something else. Right, right.
1: And and I, I would say that um, you know Substack is, is very vulnerable in the same way. You know, you could sign up for a year uh, and then you know take go. You know, maybe fulfill one more year uh, as part of your deal and then leave. So,
0: yeah, I think we'll what see. Substack does well is, is it, it, is it creates this, you know, the logistics for these, uh, individuals who don't want to handle the logistics. Now, to your point, if LinkedIn comes along and offers better logistics, better back end support, then it will be very easy to lower, lower fees,
1: lower as, as fees, Twitter, Twitter yeah. is offering versus, uh, Substack. So.
0: Being able to move your audience there. And mm-hmm. the the reason why these writers are viable in the first place is because they have huge audiences that will follow them wherever they go. So it would be relatively easy to move them over to another platform, I think. Uh, and, and the final story that we thought we would cover this week, Justin Long is back in the tech space. <laughs> He's best known as the... Uh, uh, I'm a Mac from the I'm a Mac versus I'm a PC commercials that uh, Apple successfully uh, supported for many... Uh, 2000s. Yeah. yeah, in the early 2000s. Well, Justin Long is back not playing a Mac. He's now an Intel guy. So now it's uh, in- Intel versus Mac. And Justin Long is is touting the benefits of, uh, of uh, being on an Intel processor. And of course, he's not the first to change party affiliation if you will (laughs) all all of you will remember the test man in the verizon commercials paul Marsarelli, who uh who played the uh guy in the verizon commercials who went around saying can you hear me now can you hear me now Uh, he jumped ship and switched to sprint so um we have seen these uh these changes in the past
1: where where will he go now that Sprint is no more? Maybe AT and T can hire him. It's maybe been, he uh, can.
0: Maybe he could do the next iteration of uh, PC commercials or he, Mac he, commercials. He, he can made. do a v- variety
1: show with Lily from from the AT and T stores. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, um, yeah. So you know, it's kind of funny that uh, Apple, in some ways, kind of brought this back when they announced the the M1 Macintosh um, at, at the end, the M1 MacBooks. At the end of that um online presentation, you saw John Hodgman reprise his role as uh as a PC uh without Justin Long there. But I don't know, maybe they didn't you know offer offer it to Justin Long and uh you know Justin Long got angry and, and sought out Intel, who knows? Or maybe maybe that contract was already underway. <laughs> but uh you know, John Hodgman did about 45 seconds of of shtick. Uh, reprising his uh, his PC character as a funny bit. Uh, and uh, it was, you know, uh, frankly, hit a little harder, I think, than these uh, Intel commercials that are under this new slogan of Go PC. Uh, reminds me a little bit of an old uh, Microsoft uh, campaign called I Love My PC or I Heart My PC. Uh, and uh, And what they're focusing on is really the the range, you know, it's an old argument uh, in many respects, the range of options that that you can get uh, with a PC, um, as well as touch screens, which, which aren't really a thing uh, in the Mac world. Um, so in one of the ones I've seen, for example, he looks at a whole bunch of different color options uh, for various PCs and, uh, you know, looks at one of the uh, ASUS, Two-screened uh, PCs, very unusual laptop, uh, where there's you know nothing, of course, like that for the Mac, uh, and um, and so uh, you know he he starts off kind of in in the mode of of those original commercials, but quickly switches gears to I'm Justin Long, uh, and represents himself for for the rest of the commercial. They're short spots, uh, but. Um, you know, it's uh, it's turnabout, and uh, you know, it sure didn't take a long time for uh, Apple and Intel to go back to their adversarial roles after years of um, of, of being partners uh, on on the Mac. I wonder, I wonder if they'll bring back the the Pentium guy, uh, the toast, toasting the Pentium guy, uh, also, which was another anti uh, Intel um, anti Intel campaign. that that Apple ran uh, back uh, before it was using Intel processors.
0: Yeah. And I I actually found the spots, you know, somewhat humorous. I found them to be generally effective. Um, And to your point, I think they do tout that uh, you have all this great flexibility in, in PCs, and there is a lot of form factor innovation that's going on. Whether it's going to be successful, effective, viable remains to be seen. But we are looking at a lot of different form factor shifts when it comes to PCs, using uh, especially laptops, convertibles, second screens, all of these things. So uh, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, how that how that plays out. Whereas Apple is really focused on performance, battery life noise heat you know things people be... care about yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> right no
1: i mean i mean you know look a lot a lot of these things that are being touted in in the ad have been around for a long time you know convertibles and touchscreens you know we've had since windows 8 uh and um you know they a, a lot of them represent a relatively small part of the windows laptop market however they do tend to show up more in the premium segment of, of the market. So even if uh, this doesn't really throw cold water on the M1-based Macs, uh, it's still probably a worthwhile campaign for Intel, just in terms of raising awareness of uh, what's out there for people who, uh, who, who are already uh, partial to, to Windows-based PCs.
0: Well, that's probably a great place to end this week's episode of Tech Spansive. Again, I'm Sean Dubervac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubervac.
1: And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks so much for listening.